All right, I think most of you have probably been here on Sunday evenings at some point during this year, so you know we're studying the Twelve and training with the Twelve and seeing how Jesus taught the Twelve. The topic that we're on now is how Jesus dealt with people and exactly what he did with different kinds of people. So we've looked at a number, we've looked at the multitudes, we've looked at the prospective followers, the disciples, apostles, and tonight we start on his opponents. And I drew a distinction when I was going through the Gospels between opponents and persecutors. Uh, sometimes that line may get a little blurred, but tonight we're going to start on the opponents. And that will probably take this week and part of next. And then we'll get into the persecutors, the ones who were mainly involved in the last week, of the last few days of his life. See how he treated them, how he dealt with them. And then we've got a few miscellaneous ones. So the handouts you got tonight should last you a while. I think this will probably take us uh, at least three, maybe four weeks to get through this handout. So take good care of it. Uh, All right, let's work on his opponents. How did Jesus deal with opponents? So far, everybody we've talked about has been a friendly uh, somebody that's got nothing against Jesus, really. They may have asked some questions, uh, wondering about something, but most of them are close to him or followers of him uh, were on Jesus' side. Uh, tonight we start to run into some folks that had at least some level of hostility toward Jesus. Uh, and the persecutors, obviously, a lot more than the opponents, so... Let's see how they got treated. First one is a group that we've already looked at, and we're not going to spend much time talking about them because back in February and March in there, uh, we spent a number of weeks uh, on a series we called Religious Liberty, and it was about when Jesus got in trouble for picking grain on the Sabbath or his disciples not worshiping or washing their hands. Uh, or Jesus eating with sinners. It was when the Pharisees kind of questioned him about those things. And I gave you the scriptures so you can go back and look them up, or you can go back to those early lessons on religious liberty. Uh, But since that's kind of a special group of sort of opponents, I wanted to include it in this lesson. Uh, The interesting thing to me about this group of people is how uh, basically kindly he treated them. And we pointed out that Jesus dealt with people depending on their attitudes, it seemed. Uh, These folks, if you go back and read all those accounts, uh, while they might have been opposed to him and not one of his great fans, and maybe trying to agitate him a little bit with their questions, In general, I think Jesus saw in these people some folks that were so uh, trained in tradition that when they saw something that they weren't used to, uh, they thought it was against the law. Uh, And that was because of the way the Pharisees built fences and larger fences and more fences around everything to keep anybody from ever breaking a law. Uh, But these folks that ask, they were used to what they did. 
They, they saw it all the time. They knew that you weren't supposed to do that, and this was okay, and that was wrong, and this was okay, and that was not right. And so when they saw Jesus doing something out of the ordinary, it, it shocked them. And so they'd go to him and ask this question, and since we don't have their tone of voice, we don't know how hostile or just questioning they were, but Jesus treated them like they were just asking questions. He treated them like they just didn't quite get it. And he wasn't mean to them. He wasn't harsh to them. He didn't criticize them. Uh, but when they asked him, he went back to the law and he pointed out what the law really said and how that was not what he was doing. That was not what his apostles were doing. So he, to my way of thinking, all the ones, instances like that that I read, and those three are just three accounts of it, and there's a lot more, uh, I thought he was quite reasonable with them. Uh, he pointed out the law, he pointed out the, the scripture, he pointed out the purpose of the law, and he showed them that that was different than the tradition that they were pushing or the tradition they believed in. Uh, he was pretty nice and just explained it to them. He said, yeah, this is what the law says, and this is okay what I'm doing. It's not a law. It's not, not a rule. And, and most of the time, once he thought through it, whether they saw it or not, we at least saw it, that, yeah, the tradition they were hung up on really didn't have anything to do with the purpose of the law. Yeah. Uh, for instance, that first one, the Sabbath picking on the grain. The purpose was people were supposed to rest, not work, on the Sabbath. Okay. Well, the Pharisees had made so many rules and regulations to keep anybody from possibly sneaking by that law that they'd had a tradition that, man, you couldn't even touch a head of grain. And Jesus said, no, if you're hungry, you can... Get a handful of grain. In fact, the old law even said that. But your tradition has got you so blinded to the purpose of the law. It's to rest. It's not to work on Sabbath. It's not to keep or to make somebody starve to death. Not to keep somebody from getting a little something to eat on a day that they're out somewhere and hungry. So he did that on all of them, and I thought he was quite reasonable with the the folks that ask these questions. Now, why did I spend so much time explaining that? Because I think sometimes we get trained in tradition. Well, I don't think that. I know that. We get trained in tradition. We, we've done something uh, for all our life, maybe. And if we see something a little different, it shocks us. And we think, well, you can't do that. <laughs> because we never did that before. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that everything in the world is A-OK -okay and fine and we ought to change anything willy-nilly, but we're trained in tradition on a lot of things. And the main reason I mention that is next Sunday morning we're going to start a series in our Walking Worthy theme. Uh, I'm going to do it, and I'm calling it Worthy Worship. Uh, we're going to talk about worship and what's worthy in that of our walk. 
And my guess is I'll probably say some things that upset a little bit, that shock a little bit. Because in worship is one of the main places where we're trained in tradition. Uh, so we're, we're going to talk about that in pretty frank terms, and hopefully we'll uh, learn a little bit just like these folks did from Jesus, and hopefully I'll uh, start to say do it as well as he did, but that's a little preposterous, isn't it? I better not say that. It gets close to lightning coming down here, so I'll stay away from that one. Okay, anyhow, so he dealt with people that needed the difference between law and tradition explained. Second major group I put down there is kind of a motley collection of, of stories uh, that don't all fit together. But to me, the stories kind of fit in that he, he went back to the major principles all the time. Jesus didn't get down in the weeds very often. He, he didn't deal with all the details. Uh, let's go over to Luke 22 and look at the first one. And this is a little bit like the first one, but if we lived in his day, I think we'd really see how odd some of these responses were, because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes and all that, that's what they did all day, is sit around arguing about details. Uh, they sat around and would take a law or a rule that they'd made up and try to think of all the details where that could go wrong. And then say, well, okay, we need to make a new rule to cover that. And they'd argue about that all day in their schools and with their rabbis and his followers and all. And Jesus always just went right back to the principle. He always got to the major point of it and didn't get down in those weeds too often. Uh, it's not on my list here because it doesn't quite fit how it does fit in some ways. But marriage, marriage and divorce and remarriage and all that, they were constantly asking him about that because they fought about it all the time. There are different schools of rabbis that thought one thing and another school that thought another thing, and they argued about it all the time. So they'd try to get Jesus to deal in that mess, and they'd ask him, well, how about this or how about this? And where'd Jesus go every time? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, he'd say, here's what my father intended. You know, he intended for a man to leave his family and become one with his wife, and they cling to each other, and they do that for life. And he was done. You know, I mean, he, he didn't argue with them. He didn't play that game. He just went right back to the principle. Well, here's what's supposed to happen. So, and in one sense showed them how silly some of their arguing was. Okay, Luke 22. Let's look there, beginning verse 23. Uh, and this is actually the apostles. Uh, I slipped it in. I, I kind of left it out when I was doing the apostles and Got it over on the opponent's page somehow, but it still illustrates his, how he worked. So move it on your outline over to the apostles if you want to. Uh, they got to arguing about who was going to be greatest. And we talked about that last week. 
Uh, and Jesus' example to them was, he said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the throne judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So what's he go to when they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest? He says it's different in our kingdom. Now, that works out there. You can argue about that all day at your work, at where you volunteer. Uh, you can argue about it, who's in charge. You can argue at home if you want to. But in the kingdom, it's upside down. In the kingdom, service is what's important. And he gives them an illustration. He said, you go to a banquet. There's somebody at the head table. And the servants are bringing him food and wine and everything else. Well, who's the greatest? Well, obviously the guy at the table. But not here. Here it's the ones that's serving. And that was his principle, remember, all the way through. From his foot washing episode to about everything else he did is we are here to serve. Let's not argue about who's the greatest. Let's just worry about who's serving. Uh, Luke 22, same chapter, but a few verses later, verse 34. uh, Peter uh, did his (laughs) arguing with Jesus. And in verse uh, 34, uh, Jesus told him, uh, well, it's, Go back up a little bit. Uh, he, he told Peter that Simon was going to, or he told Peter that Satan was going to sift him as wheat in verse 31. But I've prayed for you. Uh, and Peter didn't quite get it. So in verse 33, he says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster grows today, you will deny him three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they said. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, we've we got two swords. He said, well, that's enough. Kind of a strange little story there, but Jesus tells them the principle is, they're going to kill me. You know, and Peter was arguing with him, he's not going to deny him, and he's going to do... Jesus didn't argue with him about that. He knew what was going to happen. He just said, they're going to kill me, and you need to be ready. It's different now than when I sent you out before. So he was getting down to the, the real principle, the basic of it, what they needed to do. Um, and um, how many of you watched the TV series that was on earlier this year, A.D.? I mentioned it this morning. The 
episodes after Jesus died and the apostles and all that. Trouble with movie, TV, fictional accounts of the Bible is you get to thinking that might be real uh, if it's a little bit different. Actually, they did, I thought, a really good job. But they pictured the apostles hiding in Jerusalem and all that completely different than I'd ever thought about it. I never thought about it that way. I figured Peter and the boys just wandered around Jerusalem and preached whenever they wanted to. Every once in a while, the Sanhedrin would haul them in and they'd escape and all that. But, I mean, they were in hiding in this series. Uh, and like I said, I don't know how accurate it was, but they were afraid for their lives all the time. And some of them were much braver than others. Some of them said, yes, go out there and get to preaching. And some of them said, no, we can't do that. And they were trying to make deals with the uh, high priest and, and all kinds of things. And some of it, I think, was a little over the top fill in the blanks, kind of between the lines kind of thing. They gave me a whole different picture of what it might have been like after Jesus left in those days before Pentecost and actually after Pentecost. And this little story here where he told them, it's going to be different than when I was sending you out before. So we got down to that principle with them. Uh, Jesus' authority, Mark chapter 11 This is one of the clearer examples of when somebody kind of opposed him in some way and how he dealt with it. Uh, Mark eleven twenty seven. Okay, uh, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Now, what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Now, we don't know how hostile they were. Uh, I'm assuming from that bunch that they were fairly hostile. By this time, they were pretty well fed up with uh, Jesus and his antics. But So they ask him, where are you getting authority for all this? And Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So John's baptism... Was that from heaven or from men? Tell me. Okay, now what are these boys going to say? Well, Mark records for us their discussion. They go over in the corner by themselves and say, yeah, he's got us, I think. <laughs> if we say John was working for heaven, that his baptism was ordered by God, then they're going to ask us why we didn't follow John. Why we didn't believe him. But if we say it's from men, that John just made it up, uh, then they're going to lynch us because they love John. Everybody followed John. Yeah, I mean, he's got a fan club now. So we don't know what to say. So they turned around to Jesus and said, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then I won't tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Yeah, I mean, that, to me, that's my clue that they were pretty hostile, is he was kind of close to rude to them. He said, 
I'll ask you a little question, and if you can answer it, I'll answer you. Uh, th- that authority that came through, that simpleness back to the the basics kind of thing, is where he went on things. He, he didn't argue with them about what authority he had, uh, mainly because it should have been obvious to him. It was obvious to everybody else. Uh, I can't remember if it's in this story or another one we got, but... They send the temple police out to arrest him, and they come back, and they say, we never heard anything like that. That guy speaks with authority. Yeah, I mean, people recognize that. So probably that's why he treated them like he did, but he got back to the basic principle. Who basically, he was telling them, I'm from God, and if you can't admit John was, then you sure can't admit I was. Uh, last one, paying taxes. Um, Everybody's familiar with that famous story, but it's on the same page, so let's read it. Verse 13 of chapter 12. Uh, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, we know these guys are hostile. These are our opponents. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. A little sweet talking there. Uh, You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Uh, So our question is, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Well, they were trying a trick like he did. Whatever he said was going to get him in trouble with somebody (laughs) because the Jews hated paying taxes to Rome. And if he said it the other way, then they could go to Rome and say, hey, this guy just said you don't have to pay your taxes. Get the IRS after him. I mean, that's right up there with crucifixion. Uh, So they had him. It was a joke, by the way. Anyhow, they had him, and Jesus said, and he knew their hypocrisy, "Uh, why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, "Uh, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? I said, well, it's Caesar's. He said, okay, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And to God, what's God's? Well, this is Caesar. It already belongs to him. You know, he, and if he tells you you want some of it in taxes, you got to pay it. It's the way it is in the world we live in. But God's stuff, we'll, we'll give God his. This is elementary, basic Wealth of the world kind of thing, and yeah, we got to pay our taxes. Uh, so he once again cut right to the, the 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 simple principle of it: you live in the world, you got to obey government that you live under. Okay, last two. Yeah, we'll probably stop after these. Let's see, uh, the clearing of the temple, and I got two of them there because there were two clearings of the temple. Uh, John reports the first one, and the Synoptic Gospels, the other three, all report the, the second one. And some people have tried to make them the same one, but it's just impossible. The, the, the context, the, the things that he does and says are so, so different uh, that I think there were definitely two clearings of the temple. And it makes sense with his messianic message that there would be one at the first and one at the end. Of his ministry, but let's go to the first one first over in uh, John. 
chapter 2, which indicates it's probably pretty early in his ministry. Uh, in fact, it was right after he did his first miracle, according to John. That's first part of the chapter, and then verse 13, or verse 12, he says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. One of the Psalms of David, but they applied it to Jesus. Zeal for your house. Okay, so interesting story. And uh, well, before we talk about it, let's go ahead and read Mark, the second cleansing. Mark 11. And we'll discuss both of them together and what Jesus was saying here and how he dealt with certain people. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree, having skipped the fig tree, it would take us a long time to explain the fig tree. Uh, But verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Uh, And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And you'll notice this is toward the end of his ministry because the next verse says, After they saw that, chief priests and the teachers uh, began to look for a way to kill him. They didn't do that at first. They hadn't quite figured him out yet at the first, but by the end, they were, they'd had it. So they were looking for a way to kill him. Okay, taking those two passages together, uh, basically the same action, but at different times. Uh, why did Jesus react this way? Why was, I mean, this is the most upset we've ever seen Jesus. Of course, we always argue about this when we talk about anger and Righteous anger and all that, we try to figure that all out. But uh, the, the story is mostly about how he dealt with people who violated the concept of worship in his father's house. And this is so different than the way he dealt with people who questioned him about picking grain or washing hands or something like that. When they were just trained in tradition, he had explained it to them. He talked to them about it. But when they went against the very foundation of worshiping his father, he got cranked up. Now, the scene of what he was doing uh, helps us to understand it a little bit. The the temple uh, that Herod built 
was not exactly, well, the, the temple part itself was to Solomon's dimensions. But Herod wanted to make it bigger and grander than anything else for the Jews. And by this time, a lot of pagan temples were pretty big, showy deals. So Herod made this one bigger, bigger, stretched out the courts, and he put courts all around it. Uh, and the first one that you went into was the court of the Gentiles. And anybody could go in there. Uh, Jewish men, Jewish women, and Gentiles could go in there. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he quoted that passage and said, uh, my temple is a house of prayer for all nations. Yeah, God always understood that. It's buried in the prophecies. We don't see it sometimes, and the Jews surely didn't see it. But from the beginning, God intended to include the Gentiles. And so his house, where people went to pray, was supposed to be a place that anybody could go pray, okay? whether they were a Jew or not. And Herod and the people at that time called that the court of the Gentiles. The next one was the court of the women, and both Jewish men and women could go into that, but the women couldn't go any further. The next court inside that uh, was the court of Israel, and only Jewish men who were ritually clean could go in there. If they'd followed all the law of Moses, they were ritually clean, uh, and all the different things that Moses had written down, then they could go into the court of Israel. Beyond that was the temple, and only priests could go in there. So as you got closer and closer, it got more holy, if you want to think of that. Um, but the court of the Gentiles was still an important place for anybody to go pray. So what the Jews had done is ignored that. They took the court of the Gentiles, and they'd made it a place to do all the business that had to be done around the temple. So there were people selling animals because people came to the temple for Passover or for just sacrifices or for whatever they were coming for uh, from a long way away. And they couldn't bring all their animals they needed. Okay, They could, but if they got there... And the high priest said, no, that's, that's blemished. I don't accept that. Well, then they had a mess. So what the marketeers had done was they'd built a business up where we've got animals to sell you here when you get here. You don't have to bring your, your sheep and everything else. Just come and we'll sell you one. And the bonus to that was, we know from history, that the ones we're selling are high priest approved. They got the good housekeeping seal of approval on them. And for that, the high priest gets a little cut. But they're guaranteed. You, you can sacrifice these animals and it'd be all right. Well, the high priest did get a cut of it. It was a profitable business to be the high priest in those days. And so they were running that business, selling animals and ripping off the people. Uh, and he specifically mentions the dove sellers. Uh, doves were the sacrifice of poor people. 
So obviously there weren't a whole lot of rich people in the world at that time. So dove sales were pretty brisk, uh, and they had a lot of dove sellers there dealing with the poor people. The other thing he mentions is money changers. And when you went to the temple, you had to pay a tax. And it had to be in Jewish money, actually. It was another kind was acceptable, but not Roman money. So anyplace else you traveled, or if you came from Ethiopia or somewhere like the eunuch did, you might have Ethiopian money, and you had to pay your temple tax, which was a half a shekel. And you paid that, and you had to pay it in Jewish currency. It had to be a real Jewish half shekel. So the money changers were there, and they made the deal for you. They would change your Ethiopian money or your Roman money or whatever you had into Jewish half shekels. And anybody that's ever traveled abroad and knows how currency exchanges work, uh, they made a little money on it. In fact, they probably made quite a bit of money on it. So that's what they were doing there. Uh, and this is... Nothing you need to know, but let me tell you where the temple tax came from. Deuteronomy 30, uh, uh, Exodus 30. I got to wondering myself where it came from, so if the Jews of those days had made it up. But no, they didn't. God made it up. So since I found it, I'll share it with you. Exodus 30. <clears throat> Verse 11. This is back in when they were setting up the uh, the tabernacle and all of that. Uh, verse 11 of Exodus 30, Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord making atonement for your lives. Okay, there's all the principles. It's supposed to be a half shekel. It's a, a flat tax. Everybody pays the same, no matter what. And it goes to support the temple. The priests get it to operate uh, the sanctuary and all that. And it's a symbolic uh, ransom for your life. Well, clear back here in Exodus, is carried over to... Jesus' time, and if you went to the temple uh, and you had to pay an annual half-shekel tax, and the money changers made the money on the exchange of that. Okay, so what had they done really wrong? They took some things that needed to be done. This business had to be done somewhere, but they put it in the court of the Gentiles. So they basically said, Gentiles, we don't care if you pray or not. Uh, so they turned it into a place of merchandise. And that, that word has special meaning, like it's a huge flea market or something. It was just a wild, rowdy shopping experience. 
And Jesus said, that's not going to happen in my father's house. This is a place of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. And when they violated that principle, in fact, I read one commentary that said they basically turned it into an open area that was just a shortcut. Not only were they selling money, I mean trading money and selling animals, it was just a throughway to get from one part of Jerusalem to another. Uh, so people were going through with anything and everything. They, I mean, I assume wagon load of firewood or whatever else, they just drive through the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus, twice, at the start of his ministry and the end of his ministry, dealt with those people as severely as we see him physically deal with anybody. Uh, he was probably a little harsher on the Pharisees when he gave them the woes, but as far as physically expressing himself being upset, this is probably the pinnacle. Uh, drove them all out, uh, told them not to, uh, they couldn't do that in his father's house. Uh, one commentary I read said he probably didn't cause a huge disturbance for some reason because the Romans didn't react. I mean, if it would have been a genuine riot, uh, the Romans probably would have come down on it. But somehow Jesus made his whip in one case at least and got them all driven out and cleared them up for a little while. By the time the end of his ministry, obviously they were right back at it, and he did it again. So uh, what's the lesson for us in seeing how Jesus dealt with people? There's a difference between being confused about something or getting hung up on a tradition and somebody that willingly desecrates the worship of the Lord. Willingly says, I know this is a place of prayer for the Gentiles and all that, but we're going to have a carnival in here. Jesus didn't go for that. Uh, In a big way, he didn't go for that. Okay, we're about out of time. We'll tackle some more opponents and get into the persecutors in two weeks. Next week we'll be fellowshipping with brethren from around the area, uh, singing and studying and praying together. So be sure and come back next Sunday evening. If you're here tonight and need to respond in some way, need some help from this family of God, we invite you to come. Let's stand and sing. Brother Mike, come and lead us.